He ministered during the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. The Bible doesn't tell us when the earthquake was, but archaeology does. It tells us that it took place sometime between 760 and 750 BC. Um, another thing that uh, we, we know about that earthquake is the Jewish historian Josephus wrote about it in the Antiquities of the Jews. He says that this earthquake was the result of the sin that Uzziah, king of Judah, committed when he went and offered in the temple, which is a work that only priests are allowed to do. But the king is like, I, you know, I can do this. And the Bible tells us that Uzziah was stuck, struck with leprosy, so that was an immediate um, punishment on him, but that God's wrath was so severe that it, it shook the temple, that the earthquake took place. So that's what the Jews taught and Josephus recorded in his writings. None of us were present to see it. You know what I mean? We don't know for a fact. But, I mean, when you look at how these dates align and when Uzziah lived, when Amos preached, man, there's, there's got to be something to it. You know what I mean? And the fact that uh, this history was recorded by the Jews and then put down on paper by Josephus for the rest of us, I mean, that's, that's pretty powerful. So anyhow, uh, moving on, the historical context uh, so not just when it happened, but the historical context, what was the climate like, the political and economic climate, the spiritual climate. We know that Israel and Judah were both experiencing a time of mercy and blessing from God. Okay, he was allowing them to prosper. He allowed their borders to grow. He uh, slowed down the attacks from their enemies and from the surrounding nations. And uh, even though they were experiencing these blessings and mercy from God, they were indulging in sin rather than turning to the Lord. Uh, the people turned away from God. They turned away from his moral standards. They turned away from uh, doing what was right, and instead they focused on their own comfort, their own wealth, and their own lusts. Uh, so who was the target audience when Amos preached? His target audience, he, he came up, his target audience was Israel. All right, But he began his ministry by preaching to the surrounding nations, the pagans that were also gathered there in Israel. He began by, by addressing them. Then he went ahead and directed his message to Judah. But finally, it was all Israel, all Israel. And um, one of the things that we see from that, the fact that he, this guy from Judah left Judah, went to Israel. While he was in Israel, he preached to the surrounding nations and then to Israel. I mean, can you imagine going to a foreign land and preaching to their neighbors? You know what I mean? And I mean, you're, you're illustrating something that, hey, this message isn't just for the people that I'm here to talk to. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. And the Word of God has a universal application. All right? Salvation is available to all. God's righteousness is expected of all. You know? And so uh, he's perfectly just in expecting people to live a certain way. He's, he's perfectly just in expecting uh, mankind to, to avoid certain practices. And there are, there are things written on our hearts that we just know are wrong. And one of the examples I, I, I can think of right now is slavery. You know, they were practicing slavery. And I said, no, you don't steal people. You know, you, you do not steal people. It's, it's wrong. And, and everybody knows that it's wrong. And so they were judged for, for these things. But um, 
you know, we see that the world around us is drifting further and further away from God. Uh, every single day, people are drifting further away from God. Every single day, we have more people who are claiming to be atheists and, and rejecting uh, religion, re- rejecting the, the religion that they grew up with. And they, they reach adulthood and they say, okay, now that I'm grown up and moved out of the house, mom, dad, I want you to know I'm not a Christian. I don't believe like you do. You know what I mean? And you find out that for years they were living with that secret, that, that hardness of heart, while they were still under the roof of their parents. And so that's, that's a stark warning to all of us who still have people that we're influencing, young people in our homes. And we need to make sure that we're nurturing that relationship with God in their own hearts. Because uh, you, you have no idea whether or not you have a secret agent atheist under your roof. Um, so we have work to do. We have work to do when it comes to showing the world that God is real. All of us have a job to do when it comes to showing the world that God is real and that a relationship with God is available to everyone. Um, <clears throat> more things that we took away from that was uh, messages of judgment. There were, by the way, on our slide, we just missed everything for uh, the, those takeaways that I just addressed. So we're moving on to more. But it's probably not important anyway. If, as long as you're keeping up, uh, messages of judgment. Another takeaway is the messages of judgment that Amos brought to the people. All of these messages of judgment, they were against, you know, the, the people for the way that they were living, for the righteousness that they neglected, and uh, for, for the injustice that they were allowing to run rampant in their societies and within their own homes, within their own hearts. Okay. Uh, Amos was called by God to be a fierce advocate for justice and righteousness. When he went up there, he didn't pull back any punches. He hit them hard with the truth that God was not happy with them. Man, you know, I, I mean, think about when, when he said, you know, like your, your, your descendants, you know, are going to have like fish hooks in them. You know, I mean, that's, ouch. You, you, you think about getting caught by a hook. That's bad enough. But when you think about that prophecy being delivered against the children, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty rough. And, and he, didn't, he didn't hold back, did he? And, and yet today, what do we do when the Holy Spirit tells us to talk to somebody about the gospel and we say, well, no, it might offend them? Tell you what, I mean, that's pretty offensive to tell somebody that their kids are going to be caught with fish hooks, you know? And so if Amos was willing to be bold for the word of God, to be bold for the truth, then I think we should too. Uh, he condemned the injustices of the corrupt leaders of their society that had abandoned the principles of righteousness for their own um, for their own pleasure. They abandoned equity. They abandoned fairness. And instead, they said, how can I profit from this position that God's put me in? You know, I'm a leader in Israel. How can I how can I be enriched by it? I'm a leader in my church. How can I be enriched by it? And, and he came in and he condemned that. He preached against it. And even though they received goodness from the hands of God, they withheld goodness from the people who they should have been a blessing to. And he came in and he pointed that out. He put the spotlight on it. He said, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. God expects people who are in authority. One of the takeaways that we took was God expects people who are in authority to act with righteousness, to act with justice. They're supposed to protect their people. They're supposed to bring truth to their people and protect them from the injustices of a fallen society. You, you can't help it that you're going to be treated unfairly from time to time. We live in a fallen world. 
But how is that going to be rectified? There should be justice available to you. And he came at them and he, he said, hey, listen, you guys aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. These people in authority are supposed to uphold righteousness, justice. They're supposed to protect their people and they're supposed to ensure fairness while at the same time eliminate, eliminating oppression and abuse of power within their borders. That's a, that, that's a big task. And so when, when the New Testament tells us that we're supposed to pray for those who are in authority, think about what can happen in a society when they aren't exercising their authority with righteousness. Look at our own society. What happens when our leaders aren't practicing righteousness? You know, our, our society has fallen so much, so much. And I know that there are a lot of Christians who cling to the hope that, you know, we can fix it. Christianity can spread and righteousness can spread and eventually America can be a Christian nation again. You know, when you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament, you read prophecy about how things are just going to get worse and worse. You read prophecy about the tribulation that's going to come. You know, sometimes I feel like we're fooling ourselves, you know, holding on to that hope that we can have a, a Christian nation again. I think that what we need to do is recognize that the rapture can happen at any minute. You know, the nation of Israel has been restored. We're going to talk about that in the lesson tonight. And so the rapture can happen at any minute. The tribulation will begin. And here we were telling people that, oh, things are going to get better. Just pray. You know, what we need to be doing is just sticking to the word, the, the, the word of God, sticking to a relationship with the Lord, and, and pursuing him with all of our might and teaching other people to pursue him with all of their might. Uh, we're supposed to be trusting in God. When we looked at the judgments that Amos brought, one of the first things that he did was tell them, I'm going to take away everything that you trust in. You trust in your military defenses. You trust in the walls of your cities. You trust in your wealth. Everything that you put your trust in, I'm going to take that away from you. Now what are you going to depend on? Nothing. You have nothing. You will be destitute. And then at that, at that point, the only thing that you can do is turn to the Lord. So since you have this prophecy, why not turn to the Lord now? Throughout the reading of, of this book, we see time and again, repent, return to me, make things right. You know, so you have these judgments. And, and I mean, like when a kid does something wrong in the middle of the day and uh, you're maybe not in a setting where you can spank them right then and there. You tell them, wait till we get home, right? That kid right now, because of what was just said, they're, they're being told, you are going to be punished. You know, sometimes mom and dad are in a merciful mood. Hey, let's talk about this for a minute. You see what you're doing? Is that what I taught you to be like? You know what's going to happen if you keep it up. The kid has an opportunity in that moment, moment to make it right, straighten up their act, right? And then they know that if I don't straighten up my act, then when you get home, you know what's going to happen, right? And so God is telling them, hey, you've got an opportunity over and over again, repent. But we know history tells us, the Bible tells us they didn't. They didn't. They, they got taken away. Repentance was always an option for them, and that, that same option is available to all of mankind today. Uh, God reminded the people that he's the one who they should be turning to for help instead of trusting in themselves 
instead of, t instead of trusting their religious leaders, instead of trusting their political leaders, they should have been trusting in God. All right. And these people were living in oppression. The, you know, I, ju I just told you that, you know, he's, he, Amos comes and says, hey, this oppression is wrong. Okay, so that makes it sound like all the fault falls on the people who were in charge. All the fault rests on the people who had the, the ability to influence what's going on in society. But the oppressed kept giving power to their oppressors. Okay, and we're going to talk about that tonight uh, in, a little further. They kept giving those, those people more and more power. Okay, they kept going to them to get their needs met, to try and seek righteousness instead of turning to the Lord. One of the other things that we learned throughout the studies is that God is merciful and he is patient, right? He was to them, he is to us in our day-to-day -day lives, every single day, every single day. When we wake up in the morning, we breathe in that new breath, we, th we, we thank the Lord, thank the Lord, because we don't deserve it. Now, there are people who look at Christianity, and they hear us say things like, we deserve hell. They hear us say things like, it was, it was of God's mercy that I woke up with breath this morning. We, they hear us say things and, like that, and they go, you guys are so negative. You know, I mean, that's got to be bad for your self-esteem. Well, let's not focus on our wickedness, but his goodness. You know what I mean? Once, once Jesus died, to take away the stain of sin from our lives and the penalty from sin that we deserve, what should we be focusing on? How good he is. So I wake up in the morning and I say, thank God for the breath that I have, but I don't say that in focus on I'm such a wicked sinner and I should have died in the middle of the night. I say that because I'm thankful for the Lord who gave me mercy. You know what I mean? And so the, the, the people who, who hear us say that and they mischaracterize the relationship of, of Christians with, uh, with redemption, you know, they, they don't understand. And, and it's our job to show them the love of Christ. It's our job to help them to understand. Okay. Um, and then, of course, one of the things that we learned was true worship. To conceal the pattern of sin in their lives, the people embraced a false worship system. You know, they felt good about themselves going into the temple of the golden calf. You know, they, they had these religious practices and they had Amaziah, the phony priest there, who was accepting their sacrifice, making them feel like they did something right. And they were doing nothing right. Okay. The people who were in power and the people who were victims of spiritual abuse. From the pulpit to the pew, so to speak. They were all guilty. They were all guilty of being hypocrites in the eyes of God. And God wanted them to come to him in true worship. We looked at a verse in our last uh, study, Amos chapter 5, verse 21, says, you know, I hate, I despise your feast days. I mean, that's pretty powerful, right? God wants nothing to do with that type of worship. And so that's a summary of what we've covered up to this point. We still have those two subjects to, to look at tonight. All right. So uh, the reason why I wanted to address the topic of the prophetic ministry for today, why I couldn't say, you know what? Uh, we're just going to look at redemption and hope, you know, and, and, and then just leave it at that and not have anything to do with the role of pr the prophetic ministry for today is because we have a job to do. And I would rather cut content away from both messages to be able to bring this material to you tonight because they're both vitally important for, for your, 
our walk with God, okay? Uh, so uh, one of the things that we know, you know, like, like, okay, fine, you know, everybody has a job to do when it comes to preaching. I know. I hear it all the time. I need to preach the gospel. I need to go soul winning. Salvation is definitely the, the most critical of all the topics, that, of all the messages that we're supposed to be preaching is definitely the most critical, you know? If, if I don't preach brotherly love, if I don't preach, uh, you know, taking care of widows and orphans, if, if, I, if I never preach that, nobody's, in, nobody's really going to die and go to hell over that. But if I withhold the gospel, people will die and go to hell. And so we understand the importance of the gospel. But even though it's important, that doesn't mean that I have any right to neglect the other messages contained in the word of God. Okay? And so our job in modern times, we don't have Elijah, Elisha, Amos. So, so that's us who are supposed to be carrying the messages. And so I just want to make sure that we address that. So moving on, next slide. Turn your Bibles to Amos chapter 9. We'll get into the heart of the message. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Did I make it big enough? Is that big enough for some of you guys? Probably not in the very back, but if you were sitting right here, would you be able to see that? All right. All right. Um, so we'll go ahead and begin. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins and will build it as in the days of old. They that, may po- that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people, of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land. And they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Okay, we'll pray and move on. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, everything that we've learned up to this point. I hope that it's been a blessing to your people. I know it's been a blessing to me, um, but I do hope that it's a blessing to them too. And help us to get more out of what we're studying tonight as we uh, conclude the study in Amos. Be with us, we pray. We need your Holy Spirit, both in the delivery of the message and in the receiving of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, uh, moving on, we can go ahead and take a look at hope and restoration. There's hope and restoration as we, as we read that passage. Now, in verse 11, it says, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that's fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and will build it as in the days of old. So we have a promise of God right here, that God's going to bring restoration of the spiritual and political leadership that's associated with the Davidic line. Okay, so he brought this message to Israel. Remember, the Davidic line is ruling in Judah, and he brings this message to Israel. You guys should not be separate from the Davidic kingdom. God's going to make everything right someday. He's going to restore the political and spiritual leadership that that belongs to the Davidic line. Uh, This promise is often interpreted two ways. One of the ways is that rebuilding Israel after their exile is complete. So we know that they were taken into captivity. Both Israel and Judah were all taken into captivity. But at the end of their captivity, they were released. They were set free. 
And then they get a chance to return home. The Bible tells us that, you know, hey, they're going to come back. They're going to rebuild their houses. They're going to plant their vineyards. We didn't, we're not looking specifically at that verse yet, but we just read it. You guys know that it's in the Bible, so I'm not spoiling anything. Uh, so it's going to be rebuilt. They're going to come back to their land. What an incredible promise that is, right? And so that's one of the ways that we take a look at it. And, and, and therefore, because, because they're going to go back to their homeland after captivity is over, that was the fulfillment. That's one way of looking at it. Okay? The other way of looking at it, this is a messianic prophecy. A messianic prophecy pointing forward to the coming of Jesus. You see, when it tells us that in that day will I raise up the tabern tabernacle of David that has fallen, what was David promised? He was promised that one of his seed would be on the throne forever. What man can rule on a throne forever? Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one. King Jesus has come, and he is on the throne. Okay? He is on the throne. Now, the fact that he's on the throne doesn't necessarily mean that he's on the throne of our hearts. We need to make sure that we're submitting to that, but he is on the throne. And so there's the two ways that you can take a look at that verse. I find nothing wrong in accepting both of those interpretations for that verse. Okay? Um, verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And of all the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. But, okay, so are they going to possess human beings? You know, we just had people condemning slavery, and now they're being promised that they're going to possess Edom? Well, let's go ahead and look at this in context. If we take a look at the context of this as a promise of restoration, a promise of hope, and what do we have here? That these people of Edom, these people of the heathen, the heathen these people who are not Jews, and yet they're called by his name. And yet they're called by his name. That's for us, Gentiles. Nobody in here is a Jew, right? Okay, so every one of us gets to claim this promise that we will become a possession of God just like the Israelites. Okay? So it, it extends beyond the restoration of Israel. It, it, it extends beyond that in, into modern day times. That right there says that all of us can be saved. Now, if you think, Carlo, uh, you're, you're kind of stretching the scripture there, aren't you? Let's go ahead and turn on our Bibles to Acts, Acts chapter 15. And for those of you who are sitting up close, you might be able to see the next slide. Or you might be able to read the next slide. Acts chapter 15, we're going to take a look at verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. The Bible says, and this is James speaking, this is at the council of Jerusalem. And James quoted Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, reversing the conversion of the, uh, he, he, in this quote, he's talking about the conversion of the Gentiles. And so it says here, Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, after this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord who doeth all these things. So we see that that quote that James offered up was a little bit different than our King James translations, right? And so what we need to understand, they had their scriptures, they had their scrolls that they read. James is quoting that. It's then translated into Greek, okay? But we can go ahead and trust that what James said, we believe, we believe, that this recording in Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? 
we teach that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The words that James spoke at the Council of Jerusalem, inspired by the Holy Spirit, let us know that that an interpretation that this verse applies to the Gentiles being redeemable as well is 100% an accurate interpretation. All right. Um, when when James quoted that, that that means that he saw that passage as fulfilled. He saw that passage as fulfilled. Like, hey, look, this this passage is fulfilled. That's one of the reasons why at the beginning of the study I had told you guys that I believe that. Amos doesn't contain any scripture that pertain to, you know, eschatology, study of end times, that, the, that it's 100% a book about judgment and everything that he prophesied has already been fulfilled, already been completed. Okay, and uh, we'll, we'll look a little bit further at that too as we, as we move along. So verses 13 and 14, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine. And all the hills shall melt, and I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and shall drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. That passage can be a little bit confusing to anybody who's not familiar with gardening. What in the world, the reaper and the plowman and treading grapes, the people who are sowing seed? What? Uh, let's go ahead and break it down. I want you to imagine a field. In the normal course of gardening, in the normal course of raising a crop, what do you do? You plow the field, you sow your seed, you water it, you tend to it, it grows. Once it's ready for harvest, you go and you, you harvest it, you reap. Okay, you, you reap. After you're done reaping, what do you do? You prepare the land for the next cycle, for the next growing season. So here we see God's blessings are so abundant. God's blessings are just like so Oh my goodness, so overwhelming, like that that your cup runneth over. Okay. Here I am, I'm still reaping the harvest. And yet I've got the, the plowman coming by saying, Hey, look, I realize that the harvest is still producing. I realize that the crop is still producing, but it's that time of year for me to prepare for the next growing season. And the plowman is, is like, you know, I'm 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 waiting on you right now. Okay. I'm waiting on you. And, and the guy who's reaping is saying, look, I'm doing my best, but there's so much to reap. God's been so good to us that there's so much to reap. I can't go faster than you. And so the plowman has overtaken the reaper. And the same, same thing, you know, you take a look at the grape illustration. It's the same thing. Grape treading, obviously, when are you going to tread grapes? While they're still on the vine? No, it's after the harvest. It's after the harvest. So I, I harvest the grapes. I, I've, I've got all, all my grapes. They're harvested. And, you know, I'm I, treading them. You know, as I'm going through each batch, treading these grapes, I look out at the field. And they're already sowing seed. I'm like, dude, I still have a bunch of grapes here. I'm not going to get a break. God's blessing us so much that, like, I'm going to have to tear down my barns and build bigger barns to be able to receive the blessings that God is just pouring out on me. That's some pretty good promises, right? That's some hope that God gives us as we read that. The hills shall melt. As you take a look at that part of the verse, it sounds like a message of judgment, right? The hills are going to melt. 
you know, you, you read Revelation about, you know, hoping that the mountains are going to fall down on you. And then you read this, the hills are going to melt. And that sounds like a message of judgment, but we're not talking about judgment here. We're talking about hope. We're talking about God's promises of restoration for his people. We're talking about God's promises that he's going to bless his people. So how does this apply to a blessing? It's figurative language. It's poetic. The hills are going to melt. So I have, I have so many vineyards there on the hillside that are producing that is just running, is just running. There's so much to receive that it's just running that it gives the image of melting hills, okay? It just gives the image of melting hills. So it's only, it's only figurative language. It's not a message of judgment. Um, verse 14, where it says that he's going to bring them again out of their captivity. They're going to rebuild. Obviously, that speaks so clearly that I'm not going to insult your intelligence by uh, trying to make it any more clear. Well, that's pretty clear. So we'll skip to verse 15 now. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Okay, so this verse is emphasizing the permanence of the people in their land, right? Never be pulled up again. So how did they interpret that at the time that they were released from captivity and they went to their land? Well, obviously, they saw, saw that as a fulfillment of the promise, right? Hey, we're back. I mean... Sure, we have the Greeks oppressing us. Oh, great. Now we have the Romans oppressing us, but still we're back in our land, right? And so so they would have seen that at that time as a fulfillment of this promise already, that it's complete. But we know that they were driven out of their homes by the the Romans. They They were driven away from their land and thus began Jewish diaspora, right? And so they're scattered to the to the four winds. And what happened then? Christians took a look at this verse and they say. Well, apparently that doesn't apply to the Jews after all. I, I, guess, I guess that applies to the church. And so misunderstanding prophecy leads to some pretty bad heresies. Okay, now, I don't believe in replacement theology, but there are people who do. And this is one of the verses that they used to use to support it. However, praise the Lord, God brought his people back to their land in 1948 right? And they've been there ever since. And there's, there's been conflict trying to get them back out. They've, they've been constantly dealing with, with the surrounding nations, constantly, right? But God's been blessing them. God's been protecting them. And it's in the news lately. I don't need to get into that. Um, but we know in 2023 that they were restored to their land again. And so even if that wasn't a fulfillment of prophecy back in the times of the, the Greeks ruling the land or in the time of the, the Romans ruling the land, we know that still it's been fulfilled as of 1948. They are in their land. Now, am I saying that, well, they're never going to be plucked out of it? Remember I talked about we see, we see the study in the Bible about things to come. Are they going to be plucked out of their land or is there going to be a great battle in their land that Jesus himself is going to intervene in? You know what I mean? So that's where we see Revelation uh, come into play. But this verse right here, in my opinion, just my opinion, this has been fulfilled. Okay. But if you want to believe that this verse still has a future fulfillment, that that this deals with, you know, the millennial reign of Christ, that's okay. You You can believe that too. I mean, what's it hurt? What's it hurt? If you say, no, 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 I think that that's going to be fulfilled in the millennial reign. Okay. That's, that's perfectly fine. You know, that's not something to argue about. 
it's okay for people to have different takes on Scripture just so long as they're not heretical. You know what I mean? Okay, so the prophetic ministry for today. We go ahead and move on to the next part. So this would have been our uh, seventh study, the prophetic ministry for today. We want to turn in our Bibles now to Amos chapter 3. Verses 7 and 8, Amos said, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? So verse 7, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. That reveals the relationship between God and humanity. Okay, He had a bunch of prophets, an army of prophets, He would talk to them. He would reveal his will to them. He would reveal his messages to them. He would let them know, here's what I want. Here's what I don't want. Here's what they're doing that I approve of. Here's what they're doing that I don't approve of. Continue this, discontinue that. The prophets were always coming to the people with messages from the Lord. Okay, they were always doing that. And so everything that he did, he revealed it to them. And we, in modern times, have the complete word of God given to us in our Bibles. Okay, so we no longer need to look for a prophet to tell us some hidden mystery. Okay, we have the, the, the complete revealed word of God. His entire will for us is contained in these pages. Okay, and so if you want to know what the prophet would say, if there was a prophetic ministry today, the type of prophets that, that you know, I'm talking about, the Old Testament prophets, if such a ministry uh, existed today and you wanted to know what they would say if you went to them, well, you, all you have to do is go to the Bible instead because the mind of God is contained in here, okay? Uh, The prophets, uh, they served as God's instruments in in delivering messages to the people, always letting them know what his will was. And so um, we, you know, we might think, man, I wish we had prophets today. That would be so cool to be able to go to a prophet. That would be so cool to see them do their miracles and to hear them say, you know, thus saith the Lord. That would be so cool. It would, but man, to have the entirety of God's word recorded for us we bring it to to church with 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 us and you know there were times that people would say if only people treated the bibles the way they treated their phones that was that was back in the days of flip phones right but now we have our bibles on our phones too you can take it with you everywhere you go but are you reading it everywhere you go that's something that we need to be doing okay verse eight Verse 8, in this verse, he says, The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? That right there is an actions, consequences verse, okay? So you're out there camping, out there in, a, you know, some, some grassland, and you hear a lion roaring outside your tent. Natural reaction, you're going to be afraid, right? The lion roars, who will not fear, okay? The natural reaction. And the Lord speaks. Well, if the Lord speaks, what are we supposed to do? Who can but prophesy? Okay. Who can but prophesy? So we know that there are, there are messages that he has for us to carry into the world today. We know that we're supposed to be carrying those messages. And if the Lord speaks, who can but prophesy? So are we doing that? Are we carrying the messages that we're supposed to carry? Or are we living like Jonah and refusing to do so? Um, another verse, another passage that takes a look at the prophetic ministry that can still be applied to us today, Amos chapter 7. Verses 14 and 15. He said, Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, that phony priest there at the temple of the golden calf, 
I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, go, prophesy unto my people Israel. When Amos went and confronted Amaziah, he met resistance from that phony priest, didn't he? He met resistance there. And he lets him know, I, I never had an ambition to come here and confront you, okay? This isn't my thing. That's not what I was trained for, okay? I'm here talking to you right now because God himself told me to talk to you right now, okay? So don't get mad at me. I'm a herdman. I'm a gatherer of sycamore, okay? I, I, I'm, I'm not a prophet. And so just go ahead and let me deliver this message, and then I'll get back to my business. So he receives that command from God, and he goes and delivers it without regard for his personal safety, without regard to what he was leaving behind when he left his, his land, without regard to how well it was going to be received and whether or not anybody was going to like him. He didn't care. What he cared about is obeying the Lord. And that's supposed to be our heart response too. Uh, Amaziah, on the other hand, his reaction was to resist the message. So Amaziah says, no, 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 get out of here with your message. Go back down to Judah. Preach in Judah, okay? And, you know, that, that, that right there just shows the heart condition of what was going on in all the people in Israel at the time. All the people who were uh, the relig religious elite, the political elite, everybody there, they, they had a vested interest in letting that oppression and that corruption continue. They were all profiting off of it, you know? It, it was doing them well to see other people oppressed. Remember, they were selling people for a new pair of shoes. Yeah. That's an expensive pair of shoes if you need to sell a human being to afford to buy it. And they, they wanted their material comforts so badly that they didn't care about the truth of God's word, that they didn't care about righteousness. They wanted, they wanted their own comforts so badly that they, they spoke against the prophet when he came. And so... That brings us to our next slide. This is, this is a vocabulary lesson. What is a sycophant? Sycophant. That's a word that's not in everybody's vocabulary. And so um, I'm, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm sure that you guys all know what it is. I myself only learned within the past few years. Um, a sycophant is a person who acts obedient or attentive to an excessive degree towards someone who's important in order to gain advantage. Someone who praises people in power in order to gain an advantage from them. Somebody who is a self-seeking flatterer. These people don't speak against corruption or abuse because they think such opposition will make them look bad. The people who honored Amaziah, every time they brought their sacrifices to him and pretended like he was a priest of God, they were sycophants. Okay. They were coming and they were going ahead and lifting him up and making him feel like he had some sort of position of religious authority. And he was a fraud. They were a bunch of sycophants. Amaziah himself. Hey, hey, you're, you're preaching a judgment against Israel. I'm going to go and tell Jeroboam. And he goes and tells Jeroboam, hey, this guy Amos is causing problems in the land. He, he's saying that, that we're all going to die by the sword. That you, Jeroboam yourself, you're going to die by the sword. This guy, he's a troublemaker. Amaziah was a sycophant to Jeroboam. You see, he had a position of power in the temple, and he wanted to retain that power. 
So he goes to the king, this wicked king, and snitches on a man of God. What a bad testimony that is, huh? Do you think there are people like that in modern times? Think about modern history. Are you guys all familiar with who Jim Jones is? Okay, so some, some, some are and some aren't. I'll go ahead and tell you. Jim Jones was, I'll go ahead and make it real brief. Because, man, I mean, you could read the Wikipedia page about it, and it's a long read. He was, he was a religious leader. He had a church, right? And he was corrupt. The corruption in his church was pretty vile. It was pretty bad. But this guy took the Bible itself and just tossed it and said, I'm a prophet. I'm the Messiah. And so you go ahead and listen to what I say. And these people were like, okay. Now, I'm sure there were people who saw him take the word of God and treat it that way and, say, and in their hearts thought, Oh, that's not right. Somebody should say something. But they kept their mouths shut. They kept their mouths shut because what do you have in a church? You have community. And my, my community is more important to me. You know, the people that I get a chance to fellowship when I come to church with, you know, that, that's more important to me. What they think of me is more important to me than the truth. And so I'm not going to speak against that type of heresy. I'll go ahead and sit back and let it happen. The end result was these people relocated, and then they, they if you've ever heard the term, oh, they drank the Kool-Aid. This, this is applicable to uh, Jim Jones and, and his people. Uh, they, they put together a mix. It wasn't actual literal Kool-Aid, so Kool-Aid brand took a hit because of that. But it was a generic brand of uh, fruit punch. They took it, and they mixed it with poison, and they, they, they gave it to their children. And they gave it to their church members. They all drank it. People who didn't want to drink, drink it, it was forced on them. The people, but a lot of people drank it will, willingly. A lot of people died. A lot of people died. What a tragedy that something like that would happen, all because people aren't willing to stand up for the truth. Okay? Uh, in, in more recent times, you have David Koresh. I was, I was stationed in Alabama during that siege at Waco. And I remember in the news hearing about what was going on out there. And a lot of us were joking in the barracks, like, why don't they send the Marines in there? We can end that real quick. <clears throat> but, you know, last thing you want is to use the military against our own people. And so it was, it was just a bunch of guys in the barracks running their mouths. But anyway, David Koresh, he was another cult leader. And uh, again, vile, vile sins against his congregation. And they ended up uh, in a siege, the, the FBI ended up raiding their compound, and a lot of people died. Okay, but a lot of people were abused under the leadership of both of these men. How about more recent times? Can you think of more recent examples of people who abused their power in churches? I'm not going to name names, but you guys can probably think of people. The independent fundamental Baptist movement is small. It's small, and because it's small, news spreads real quick. And we hear about people doing things, and it's heartbreaking when you, when you, when you hear about it happening, right? And, and then there are people who are victims of what happened out there, and, and your heart grieves for them, right? And you wonder, why didn't anybody say anything? Why did you guys put up with it? And a lot of times, one of the reasons why is because they're a bunch of sycophants. Okay, you can't just be a yes man. You have to know what the word of God says. Right. You have to know what the word of God says. 
Now, obviously, coming to church and hearing the Word of God preached is part of learning what the Word of God says, but that can't be the only feeding on the Word of God that you do. Otherwise, somebody who's charismatic, somebody who's abusive, somebody who's corrupt can go ahead and use their charisma, can use their fancy words to get up and preach a sermon and make you believe that they are a modern-day man of God and that they're a modern-day Messiah and you're supposed to do whatever they say. They can't be questioned. They can't be challenged. And if you dare question anything that they're saying, brother, you know you're, you're sowing discord right now. The fact that you're speaking against this, you're, you're bringing yourself danger close to church discipline. You know God hates it when people sow discord among the brethren. Watch your step. Let me tell you something. You are not sowing discord among the brethren if you question abuse of God's people. You're not sowing discord among the brethren if you question, why did we spend money on that? You're not sowing discord among the brethren if you question, where's the transparency? You're not sowing discord among the brethren if you say, I saw how you treated that person, and and I feel like that's probably not the best way to show the love of Christ. You're not sowing discord among the brethren if you say, I have a question, like a noble Berean. I have a question about a passage that you just preached. You said this, but I understand it to mean this. Can you help me understand? What are you doing, questioning me? No, no, no. No, no, no. You're being an ennoble Berean. Okay, you do your part, believers. You do your part. But all these instances of abuse, when, you know, you, you have the, the abuser, and I hate blaming the victim. You have the abuser who is definitely the one who is most in the wrong. But you have all these victims, and the reason that this victim... The, the reason that people continue to be victimized is because of so many people who stay quiet. Okay? We need to not do that. We need to not allow that to be a part of our culture. Um, I'll go ahead and move on. The, alleg- the Israelites had allegiance to Amaziah, and Am- Amaziah had an allegiance, allegiance to Jeroboam, but nobody had any allegiance to God. We need to make sure that our allegiance is to the Lord and that we practice true worship of our creator. Okay, so moving on, prophetic ministry in the modern age for the church, we take a look. The Bible tells us that there are gifts to the church, and we're not talking about spiritual gifts like, you know, giving or, you know, that stuff. I'm talking about specific gifts to the church, and the next slide has them. In Ephesians, we learn that uh, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to the church for a purpose, all right? Now, we know that the, that the age of the apostles and the age of, of the prophets are both past, all right? The, the apostles, their role was vital for proving to the Hebrews that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, okay? They performed miracles. They knew Christ. They, walk, they walked with him. In the case of Paul, he knew Christ, but he met him after uh, the resurrection. I mean, that, that right there, that whole event is contained in the Bible for us to read. Uh, but they all were able to communicate with Jesus himself. They all performed miracles, and they all served to prove that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Messiah. The apostles built on the work of Jesus, 
as the church grew. And the apostolic age is over. All right, it's past. Then you have the prophets. The prophets were also a gift to the past. We read about the prophets in the Old Testament, but we, sometimes we forget that there were prophets in the New Testament too. In fact, you know, when you, when you read about the giving and the collections that were being taken for the saints in, in Jerusalem and that great dearth that was going to hit the land, you know, there was going to be a famine and all these people were going to be affected and it was going to be a rough time. It was going to be. You notice I'm using future tense? That's because it was a prophecy. It was a prophecy that was given by one of the New Testament believers. Okay, so the early church had prophets. But again, that era is over. We have the, the complete canon of scripture. It is closed, and there is no, no more need for any new revelations. Um, evangelists. We had the apostles, the prophets, and we have evangelists. Well, the word tells you itself. What, what is the meaning of the word? Evangelist. What do, what do you think an evangelist does? Evangelize. Man, I mean, that, that makes it so easy. Now, a lot of times we have experience with evangelists. What do they do? Do they evangelize? Well, they come to a gathering of believers, and they, they motivate you to go evangelize, right? Biblically speaking, an evangelist is a missionary. Okay, this is somebody who goes out and evangelizes. This is a gift to the church. This is a gift to the church. This person has an anointing of God to go and carry out this ministry. What does that mean? It means that not everybody is called to be a missionary. Not everybody is called to be an evangelist. Okay, we are all called to evangelize, but not everybody is that person in that bullet point. Okay, just like not everybody is an apostle, not everybody is a prophet, not everybody is an evangelist. Okay, so these are missionaries. These are people who are supposed to be going out, hearing the gospel to foreign lands, seeing new churches spring up, seeing new believers come to the kingdom. All right, that's their job. Then you have pastors. Well, as Christianity spreads, what's a pastor supposed to do? He stays put. A pastor is not an evangelist. A pastor is not a missionary. A pastor is a shepherd of a local congregation. The pastor's job is to shepherd the sheep that God has given to them. What did Jesus say? Feed my sheep. He didn't say build your kingdom. He didn't say tour the world, tour the nation. He said feed my sheep. Okay, that command definitely applies to a pastor. A pastor, obviously, when we read the New Testament and we see that they're also called shepherds, we call, see that they're called uh, elders, they are the leaders of a specific group of people. And I used the word leader. Why? Because they are supposed to lead us. And if I have a leader, that makes me a follower. I am supposed to do my job and submit to that leadership. Okay? I am supposed to do my job and submit to that leadership. And so what about what I just said a minute ago about making sure that I examine the scriptures and that... I ask questions. I do so respectfully. You know, I do so respectfully. Okay. Last thing you want to do is be the person who says, hey, you said blah, blah, blah. You misquoted that passage. You don't even know your Bible. What are you doing pastoring our church? What in the world? Where's the humility there? A person who thinks that they can confront their leader with that attitude they're depending on themselves, aren't they? they? They have a pretty high mind of themselves. Okay, and we need to have some humility. Uh, so anyway, the pastor has his job to, to minister to a local congregation. And then you have the teachers, so the teachers. The teachers help the pastor. So the pastor is shepherding the church. 
obviously the pastor is supposed to teach as well. The Bible tells us that he's supposed to be apt to teach. Um, but there are also teachers in the church. Their job isn't to pastor anybody. My, my job is not to shepherd anybody. I'm never going to tell any one of you what to do. Okay? I will never attempt to do that. If I were a pastor, I might do that. Okay? But I, I would never try to do that as, as somebody who teaches the word of God. That's not a teacher's role. Okay? So what does a teacher do? Well, the teachers are, are given to the church for discipleship, for teaching. You know, you're not going to find a Sunday school teacher in the Bible, but you see the role of teacher in the Bible, and that serves a, a very specific need in, in the church. You need discipleship. We, we need to hear from other people. Okay? When we used to have Faith Baptist Academy, one of the things they liked to do is ask people who are just regular members of the church, come out and deliver De, de, deliver a devotion, you know, next time we have chapel. Why? why? Why would we want your average layperson to come and talk to the kids? Because the kids need to know that any one of us can teach the word of God. The Bible says that the time has come in our lives that we should be teachers. And yet here we are needing somebody else to teach us instead. It doesn't mean that we're all supposed to be these teachers that are the gifts to the church. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that we have a job in teaching the word of God. If you're going to share the gospel, what are you doing? You're teaching the word of God. If you're going to help somebody understand who Jesus is, what are you doing? You're teaching the word of God. Okay? And that's our job. We're supposed to do that. Okay? You have a new convert. You just led somebody to the Lord and you tell them, okay, I want to invite you to come to church so that way you can be baptized. What did you just do? You just taught them from the word of God. Okay? Why, why do I need to be a member? As they got saved. They were added to the church. You, you, you become a member by default. In fact, if you don't come and join the church, then you're, you're already disobeying, and you don't want to start your Christian life like that. What are you doing? You're teaching them. You're teaching them. You're helping them understand. So every one of us can teach in any capacity but there are people who are given to the church to um, specifically help the pastor in the role of discipling the congregation. So then, Amos, he faced opposition when he faithfully spoke God's truth, right? And believers of today are also supposed to faithfully uphold the word of truth, no matter what kind of opposition they face. And uh, the need for discernment in our churches is so dire. You know, I talked about it already about uh, people who are victims of abuse within the churches, how it's a problem even today. And, um, you know, for those of you who've been around for a while, you can, you can think of examples. In fact, it's possible if you've never, if you've been a member of other churches aside from Faith Baptist Church, I'm, I'm thankful for our church. I'm thankful for Faith Baptist Church. I praise the Lord for this church. But if you've ever been a member of another church, it's quite possible that you've experienced spiritual abuse, you know? And if you have friends who are members of other churches and they talk to you about maybe something that's happening in their church, you probably know somebody who's a victim of spiritual abuse, you know? Spiritual abuse can take all kinds of forms too. Not just me telling you to do something even though it's not scriptural. It can be in the form of financial abuse, you know? I can be pressing you to the point of poverty without any scriptural support to give. And yet, I'm not giving anything. In fact, I'm profiting off of your giving. You know, um, that, that wouldn't be right. That would, that would be an abuse of the people. Okay? 
I want to share with you a pastor that post that I want to share with you a post that pastor put on Facebook. For anybody who's not friends with pastor on Facebook, we're going to go ahead and read this right now. And his Facebook profile is public, so I'm not violating his privacy by reading this tonight. It goes like this. It does not hurt the name of Christ when sin comes out. It hurts the name of Christ when sin that should have been dealt with gets covered up, and then God himself has to bring it out. Any man who covers up sin so as to spare the name of Christ is not a shepherd. Shepherds protect sheep, not wolves. Pastors protect people, not kingdoms. Whistleblowers and victims are not the ones who should feel the guilt for shaming the name of Christ. That shame belongs to the offender and every complicit party. The phrase in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, of whom the way of truth is evil spoken, is not a reference to victims coming forward to manifest sin. It's a reference to unfaithful leaders who manipulate and use the flock for their own selfish purposes. And for those men, the end of next verse, 2 Peter 3, 3, also applies, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Man. That's a pretty good post, right? That's pretty good. I mean, he's going at him, you know? He's going at him. And I can, I, can, I can probably tell you why this came about. I haven't asked him, but I can tell you it's probably because there's recently a document, documentary on the Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement that has been published, that it's available for people to watch. People are finding out about all kinds of transgressions that have happened in churches and it's been brushed under the rug, people who have been victimized. You know, one of the problems with allowing that to continue is that this, when you have a victim who grows up under that, when they grow up, not only do they turn their back on the church, but they, they teach their children that the, the church is unreliable, that you can't trust the church. They're all a bunch of phonies. They're, all they want is your money. They teach their kids that. and those, So now you, you have a generation of people who are growing up damned to hell because people stayed quiet. Because people stayed quiet. I, I, I want to repeat something that he wrote in his post. Um, that shame, that shame. You know, shaming the name of Christ, that shame belongs to the offender and every complicit party. People who knew about it and stayed quiet. Okay. So anyway, exposing sin is not uh, sowing discord. We already addressed that. So we've, we've covered a lot, and I know that's a lot to swallow. I hope that it made sense. And uh, if it didn't, I hope that maybe the slides were a help. But anyway, let's go ahead and take a look at it. In summary, real brief, I, and I mean it. Okay, I know, I know that I can be long-winded, but I mean it. Okay, the restoration of Israel is one of the promises that was fulfilled in recent history. God's promises are dependable, right? And we can hang our hope on them. All of mankind has hope, thanks to the reliable promises of God, okay? Everything that we see that was fulfilled in Amos proves that God keeps his word, okay? Prophets of the past, preachers of today, and every believer have a responsibility to pursue a relationship with God above all else, above all else. Your relationship with God, if it's right, is naturally going to lead to you doing what you're supposed to do, whether it's uh, sharing the gospel with somebody, whether it's 
leading your home right, conducting yourself honest in business, whatever you do. The fact that you pursue that relationship with God, that you want to be tight with the Lord, is going to make everything else fall into place in your life. So our allegiance in God is going to result in churches that glorify our maker. And ultimately, isn't that what we want? Okay, so let's go ahead and pray and we'll be dismissed.